What if over 90% of William Shakespeare's works had been lost to history? Imagine that the only plays we knew of were Coriolanus or A Winter's Tale, while his most famous works, Hamlet, Othello, A Midsummer Night's Dream, had been destroyed long ago. This is what author Carl Sagan posits in his 1980 book, Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, when discussing the tragic loss of the library at Alexandria and its vast collection. The ancient library at the heart of the Egyptian city of Alexandria was rumored to have housed anywhere from 40,000 to 700,000 books. These included works from Homer, Plato, and Socrates. Nearly all these valuable manuscripts have been lost ever since the library was destroyed thousands of years ago. For centuries, the mystery surrounding the catastrophic loss of the greatest archive of knowledge in the ancient world has been a hotly contested debate. Some works were saved, but is it possible any other ancient text survived the volatility of Alexandria and the fate of its fabled library? Or are they truly gone? Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. This episode, we're looking into the destruction of the Royal Library at Alexandria, which was established in the Egyptian seaport of Alexandria sometime between 295 and 283 BCE. The library housed texts from all over the world and supported the work of scholars at Alexandria's research institute, the Moseon, meaning Temple of Muses, Moseon was an ancient world version of a modern-day museum. Most of these works and research were lost when the library was destroyed. And though it's been around 2,000 years since the suspected date of the library's destruction, we still don't know for sure how or why it was demolished. While many believe most of the texts in the library were likely destroyed, there were some works that survived, including the seven known plays of the Greek playwright Sophocles, writer of the Oedipus Rex trilogy. The fact that some works survived the library's downfall gives credit to the theory that more priceless texts from the ancient world might still be out there. As you can imagine, not knowing for sure how, why, or even when the library was destroyed makes it difficult to even begin tracking any material at large. But the allure of that lost knowledge has survived through the centuries, inspiring historians and archaeologists to look into the mystery of Alexandria. Sagan ponders, quote, Imagine what mysteries about our past could be solved with a library card to the Alexandrian Library, end quote. There are four main theories as to when and how the Royal Library at Alexandria was destroyed. The first theory states that in 48 BCE, a certain famous Roman general set fire to an Egyptian fleet in Alexandria's harbor during a siege of the city. 
The flames spread into the city and consumed the library. The second theory suggests the library burned down along with an adjacent pagan temple in 391 CE as part of a Christian decree banning all pagan materials. The third theory is that the library was destroyed in 640 CE after the Muslim conquest of Alexandria. The Arabs used the heretic books and scrolls from the library as kindling to heat their bathhouses. Our final theory claims that the library was actually not destroyed in a single incident. Rather, the building gradually fell apart as a result of neglect and constant military bombardment. Each of these theories could be the truth behind the library's destruction. But more importantly, each one points to distinct ways that the priceless texts within the library could have survived. Our investigation begins with the namesake of the city of Alexandria, Alexander III of Macedon. Better known as Alexander the Great. Alexander is best known for his success as a conqueror and military ruler, but he was also deeply invested in the accumulation and spread of knowledge and culture. At this period in history, knowledge was a local concept more concerned with preserving local heritage and traditions. But with the rise of Alexander, the Greeks began to look outward and seek knowledge on a global scale. The Greeks had interacted with civilizations in the East in both trade and in war. They were impressed with the academic achievements made by the Eastern scholars in Babylon and Egypt and wanted to absorb that knowledge as a means of advancing their own society. Alexander himself was a student of the Greek philosopher Aristotle. As a pupil, he was hungry for knowledge, and as a king, he was set on establishing himself as a ruler and a conqueror. In 334 BCE, Alexander set out on a military campaign that would last the rest of his life. He conquered most of Asia and established an empire that stretched from his home in Greece all the way to India. One of his earliest conquests was Egypt. There, after what was surely a heavy brainstorming session, Alexander established the city of Alexandria. Alexandria was a seaport city and was originally intended to be a link between Greece and the Nile. After Alexander's death, Egypt was left under the control of his general, Ptolemy. Ptolemy proceeded to make Alexandria the new capital of Egypt and declare himself the new pharaoh. Ptolemy continued Alexander's tradition of being a scholar as well as a ruler. He hired Demetrius, a scholar and the former ruler of Athens, as his special advisor. It was around 295 BCE that Ptolemy charged Demetrius with creating the world's first research institute. Demetrius got to work. Naturally, a building of this scale would need to be named in honor of a god. Given that the purpose of this institute was to collect, spread, and advance knowledge and culture, the choice of which god or goddesses in this case, was obvious. The building would be called the Moseon in honor of the Greek muses who were said to preside over the arts and sciences. The second century BCE book, Letter of Aristeus, reveals the Moseon was to be the ancient world's first universal library, a library containing all writings known to man. It reads, quote, Demetrius had at his disposal a large budget in order to collect, if possible, all the books in the world, end quote. 
Demetrius modeled his Moseon after the Lyceum in Athens, where he had studied under the famed Greek philosopher Aristotle. The exact size and layout of the Moseon is not known, but it seemingly was at least large enough to take up a good portion of a city block in Alexandria's grid-like plan. The Moseon was a temple. It had shrines for each of the nine Greek muses. It also operated as a place of study, housing several lecture halls, laboratories, observatories, botanical gardens, a zoo, living quarters, and dining halls, as well as the library itself. An inscription above the shelves in the library named the building as, quote, the place of the cure of the soul, end quote. Around 283 BCE, Ptolemy I officially established the Royal Library as an extension of the Moseon. It is unclear if the Royal Library was simply an attachment of the Moseon structure or if it was a separate building of its own. Ptolemy only enjoyed the library for one year. He died around 282 BCE and was succeeded by his son. During Ptolemy II's reign, more than 100 scholars, including Greek mathematicians Euclid and Eratosthenes, worked in the Moseon. They conducted scientific experiments, lectured, published, copied, and collected works not only of Greek origin, but translations of works from Egypt, Assyria, and Persia, as well as Buddhist texts and Hebrew scriptures. Perhaps the most comprehensive bibliographical catalog of the library's contents was conducted in the mid-3rd century BCE by Greek poet Callimachus. He created the Pinacus, or tables, which categorized books or scrolls as rhetoric, law, epic, tragedy, comedy, lyric poetry, history, medicine, mathematics, natural science, and miscellaneous. Unfortunately, only a few fragments of the Pinacus remain. One of the major acquisitions for the library were the highly coveted Books of Aristotle, written during the 4th century BCE. The first man to investigate and philosophize on logic, Aristotle was an important philosopher whose works analyzed physics, biology, law, ethics, and literature, among other subjects. As Alexandria's reputation for being the intellectual center of the world prospered, the Ptolemaic pursuit of a universal library continued through the 3rd century BCE. Ptolemy III Ewergetes, who succeeded his father Ptolemy II in 246 BCE, reportedly required every ship that sailed into the harbor of Alexandria be searched for any texts. If a book was discovered, it was taken to the library to decide if the work should be returned to the owner or confiscated and replaced with a copy. The copy was then returned to the owner, who were only sometimes provided adequate compensation. Books acquired in this manner were designated from the ships. Another method of acquisition, detailed by 2nd century CE Greek philosopher Galen, reveals how Ptolemy III obtained the original texts, including plays and poems, written by Greek tragedians Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. The precious texts were kept in the Athenian state archives and restricted from being lent out. Ptolemy III persuaded the Athenian governors to permit him to borrow the texts in order to have them copied and returned. The Athenians relented on the condition that Ptolemy III provide a fortune in silver as collateral. 
he would only get the money back once he had returned the text intact. So you can guess what happened. Ptolemy III was happy to forfeit the money in exchange for the original texts. Aside from these unusual methods of collection, books and scrolls were purchased from places such as Athens and Rhodes, which were the largest book markets at the time. Different editions were often purchased such as Homeric texts civic editions or a city's official copy of the original, which may have contained variations in the text. The Ptolemaic efforts were nothing less than a quest to collect a great universal library. It was an incredibly admirable and ambitious mission that lasted centuries. What we know about the texts that were housed in the library makes their loss all the more tragic. One such collection was the History of Babylonia, a three-volume history of the world written by Babylonian priest Berossus. Only fragments of the original 3rd century BCE collection remain, but according to Sagan, quote, the first volume dealt with the interval from the creation to the flood, a period Barossus took to be 432,000 years, or about 100 times longer than the Old Testament chronology, end quote. According to Roman author Pliny the Elder, the library's collection also contained Athenian author Hermippus's book on Zoroastrianism, the monotheistic pre-Islamic religion of ancient Persia, founded by the prophet Zoroaster in the 6th century BCE. The scholars of the Moseon were able to translate the Pentateuch, or the Torah, from Hebrew to Greek. They also translated the Septuagint, the earliest Greek translation of the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. This translation was completed piecemeal throughout the 3rd and 2nd century BCE. It is one of the works that survived and has become indispensable to Christian biblical studies. These incredible contributions led the Royal Library closer and closer to Ptolemy I's original vision of a universal library. The rapid and complete acquisition of knowledge from all corners of the intellectual world, which spanned centuries, sustained the Ptolemaic hunger to have the many shelves of the library become the center of the academic universe. In the late 2nd century BCE, the collections of the Royal Library greatly exceeded the space that was allotted for the accumulated books. To house these surplus volumes, Ptolemy III deemed it necessary to establish a sister branch, sometimes referred to as the Royal Library Annex. Ptolemy III established this annex as part of the newly built Serapium in the Rakotis. If the Royal Library at Alexandria needed a second branch, just how many books did the main location hold at any time? Estimates of the total number of books, manuscripts, or documents vary, but the earliest surviving figure from the 3rd century BCE is reported as, quote, more than 200,000 books, end quote. A still higher estimate of 700,000 books was made between the 2nd and 4th centuries CE. At the Serapium, the library's annex, is reported to have held 42,800 books or scrolls. In his 12th century CE book, Prolegomena to Aristophanes, Byzantine scholar John Tsetsis claims 42,000 books in the outer library. In the inner library, 400,000 mixed books plus 90,000 unmixed books. It seems as if mixed books contained a combination of multiple texts within them, while unmixed books contained only one. 
a collection of 700,000 books. The closest comparable ancient library, the 3rd century BCE Turkish Library of Pergamum, held at one time 200,000 scrolls. No other contemporary library came close. Collecting and cataloging books and texts was just one function of the Royal Library. The Royal Library was also crucial in supporting the scholars at the Moseon. And it was in large part due to the library's vast resources that these researchers could maintain such a high quality of scholarship throughout the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE. In the 1st century CE, Roman author Vitruvius expressed his gratitude for his predecessor's achievements in preserving the, quote, memory of mankind. We must render to them the greatest thanks because they did not let all go in jealous silence, but provided for the record in writing of their ideas in every kind, end quote. Where would we be without the Royal Library's atmosphere for learning? The efforts of these superb ancient minds may have propelled civilization ahead centuries, if not more. As is now known, most of that knowledge was lost. To have any hope of finding the lost texts, we must pinpoint exactly when the library at Alexandria was destroyed. And thus, our search begins with one of the most iconic figures in world history, Julius Caesar. How did the paths of these two great icons cross? We'll find out after the break. Now back to the story. Before the Common Era, the Royal Library at Alexandria was a thriving intellectual center led by the world's first research institute, the Moseon. Depending on the report, the library's collection contained anywhere from 40,000 to 700,000 texts. Tragically, the library has long since disappeared, with the fate of most of the collection remaining unknown. Our first theory states that the Royal Library at Alexandria was destroyed in 48 BCE when a Roman general's tactic to burn a fleet of Egyptian ships backfired. That Roman general was none other than Julius Caesar. At that time, Caesar was embroiled in the Great Roman Civil War, also known as Caesar's Civil War. Caesar and his army waged war against Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, or Pompey, leader of the Roman Senate. In 48 BCE, their forces met at the Battle of Pharsalus in southern Greece. Even though he was outnumbered, Caesar claimed victory. Pompey fled to Egypt, where another civil war was raging. The renowned Cleopatra, descendant of Ptolemy I and ruler of Egypt, fought against her brother, Ptolemy XIII, for control of the country. When Pompey arrived in Egypt, Ptolemy XIII ordered him murdered. He hoped Pompey's death would appease Caesar. When Caesar arrived at Alexandria, Ptolemy XIII showed him Pompey's severed head. Instead of joining Ptolemy XIII, as was the plan, Caesar wept at the sight of Pompey, his one-time ally and friend. He then sided with Cleopatra against Ptolemy XIII, and the two forces went to battle. Caesar had entrenched himself in the city and fell under the siege of Ptolemy XIII's navy. Ptolemy XIII's siege of Alexandria went on for months. When the Egyptians made a move to recapture a fleet of ships that Caesar's army had commandeered, 
Caesar was forced to take drastic measures. Caesar informed his generals to set the ships aflame, thus taking away any advantage Ptolemy XIII may have sought. Caesar retreated to the nearby island of Pharos as his generals began lighting the vessels on fire. This plan didn't work out so well. As the flames smothered the ships in tendrils of smoke and ash, the fire spun out of control, spreading from the vessels to the parts of the city nearest the shore. This included the district where the royal library is believed to have been located. It is here at the hands of Julius Caesar that the library may have burned, the majority of its contents turning to ash. According to Greek biographer Plutarch, in his 2nd century CE book, Parallel Lives, quote, the fire spread from the dockyards and destroyed the great library, end quote. Strengthening the claim was Roman historian Livy, who in his 28 BCE book, The History of Rome, wrote that 40,000 scrolls were destroyed in the fire started by Caesar. Depending on the estimates, 40,000 scrolls could have accounted for the entirety of the library's collection, or it could have only been a small fraction of the total catalog. In his 1986 book, The Vanished Library, Luciano Confora posits that it wasn't the library that was destroyed, but the warehouses nearest the shore that housed an abundance of manuscripts waiting for export. Confora states that 1st century BCE Greek author Strabo, during his stay in Alexandria from 25 to 20 BCE, quote, doesn't mention the library simply because it wasn't a separate room or building. End quote. In Alberto Manguel's 1996 book, A History of Reading, he states that Strabo, quote, described Alexandria and its Moseon in some detail, but never mentioned the library. It must have been attached to the colonnades and common room of the Moseon, end quote. This may mean the library was not a separate building, but an attachment of the Moseon. And if the library and Moseon were indeed housed in a single structure, then Strabo's detailed description of the Moseon in 20 BCE shows that Julius Caesar may not be to blame after all for the alleged 48 BCE destruction of the library. Our second theory is the Royal Library and its annex were destroyed by a Christian decree that outlawed pagan worship. By the end of the 4th century CE, Christianity was thriving. It would soon become the only acceptable religion throughout Egypt. In 391 CE, Roman Emperor Theodosius I issued a decree denouncing all pagan symbols and documents. By order of Theodosius' decree, Alexandria's pagan or heathen temples were demolished. This included the Temple of Serapis or the Serapium. Theophilus, the Coptic Pope of Alexandria, led the assault on the Serapium. He even struck the first blow to the statue of the god Serapis. After Theophilus's riotous followers were done destroying the Serapium, he ordered a church be built on the temple's site, most likely to cleanse the area of its perceived previous sins. Fourth century CE historian Eunapius mentions in his Vitae Odyssey that Theophilus and his followers, quote, brought destruction on the temple and made war on its contents. Only the foundations they could not take away because of the magnitude of its stone blocks, which they were unable to remove. But they spoiled and destroyed practically everything, end quote. 
Hearst and Silk note Aphthonius, another contemporary witness, who described the Serapium as having rooms on the inner side of the colonnade that served as bookstores. These bookstores were open to those who, quote, devoted their life to the cause of learning. Some other rooms were set up for the worship of the old gods, end quote. Since it would have been deemed heresy to worship the old gods after 391 CE, Aphthonius seemed to be describing the conditions of the Serapium and the library's sister branch from some time before its destruction. He is noted to have visited the Serapium before its alleged downfall. While it's clear the sister branch in the Serapium was most likely raised by Christian purging, what of the royal library? Well, there's no mention of it in the destruction of the Alexandrian temples. Was it spared? Did any of the scrolls survive Theophilus's wrath? Or was another culprit responsible for the demolition of the physical structure or the intellectual ideal of the royal library? One possibility is a combination of our first two theories. It does seem odd that there would be no account of Theophilus destroying the royal library given the extreme detail provided on his destruction of the annex. This may be because the library was actually destroyed by Caesar, as we earlier theorized. The annex remained only to be destroyed along with the temple to Serapis by a Christian purge. What we do know is that the library's last recorded head librarian was Theon, who died in 405 CE. According to some scholars, the fate of the library rested in the hands of Theon's daughter, Hypatia, upon his death. Canfora writes, quote, The Serapium had been destroyed in the attack on the pagan temples in 391. The last famous figure associated with the museum had been Theon, father of celebrated Hypatia, whom the Christians convinced she was a heretic, barbarously murdered in 415 CE. End quote. Canfora explains that by the time of Hypatia's death, quote, the city's books had changed, and not only in their content. The delicate scrolls of old had gone. Their last remnants had been cast out as refuse or buried in the sand, and they had been replaced by more substantial parchment, crawling with errors, for Greek was increasingly a forgotten language, end quote. This claim could also mean the legendary collection of the library may have already left Alexandria, spread throughout academic circles, or preserved in the hands of expelled or former scholars of the Moseon. Hypatia's death dealt a devastating blow to the intellectual ideal of Alexandria. The library's last remnants are said to have been destroyed soon after her murder. It's almost as if the vast work of some of the greatest minds of the Hellenistic period and beyond vanished overnight to a population who no longer remembered them nor wanted to. Even if the Royal Library at Alexandria still existed at this time, it seems that it was a shell of its former self. It was not Ptolemy's great collection, his grandiose intellectual center of the known world. But if this were the case, many of the library's ancient texts could have survived. And if they did, where are they now? With no irrefutable proof that the physical Royal Library at Alexandria was destroyed from 391 to 415 CE, 
We need to look to our last two main theories in order to decipher whether or not there may be any undiscovered surviving works. Is it possible the ancient world's greatest intellectual texts met their end heating the bathwater of 7th century Muslims? Or could these lost works have escaped the fires, snuggled safely in the hands of expelled scholars, desperate to preserve Alexander's original pursuit of knowledge and Ptolemy's patronage of scholarship? We'll look into these possibilities after the break. Now, back to the story. The Royal Library at Alexandria certainly saw its share of turmoil. As a seaport city linking Greece and Greater Egypt, Alexandria was a strategically valuable city. The city was susceptible to sieges, religious infighting, and a likely decline in the pursuit of knowledge that was established by their predecessors. It seems that Caesar's 48 BCE fire was not entirely to blame. There's also no concrete proof the library was destroyed during the Christian purge of the Alexandrian temples, including the library's sister branch. This leads us to our third theory, which begins with a 13th century story about a 7th century conquest. The story comes from 13th century Christian scholar Gregory Bar Hebraeus. According to Hebraeus, during the 640 CE Muslim conquest of Egypt, the conquering Arabs, led by General Amir ibn al-Az, heard tales of a magnificent library which contained the knowledge of the entire world. The Arabs were anxious to see the impressive collection. The Caliph Omar, king of the Muslim empire, believed the library's texts would either contradict the Quran, making them heresy, or the texts would agree with the Quran, making them superfluous and unnecessary. Upon Omar's orders, Allah's had the manuscripts gathered together and used them as fuel for 4,000 various bathhouses throughout the city. There was so much paper that the fires from them were enough to heat the bathhouses for six months. Hebraeus' account appeared more than five centuries after the Arab conquest of 640 CE. In those five centuries, there was no mention nor any reference to any incident involving the library at Alexandria. Unfortunately, this theory doesn't seem to hold water which begs the question of where this theory comes from and what reason people would have to spread it as a possible fact. Egyptian Arab scholar Ibn al-Kifti, along with other 13th century Arab authors, made Hebraeus's unfounded story popular. What happened in the 12th and 13th centuries that aroused interest in the fate of the library? And why was al-Az believed to be the culprit instead of any of the previous culprits? After more than five centuries of silence since the alleged destruction of the library's sister branch, why was Kifti so anxious to record and spread the story? During the 11th and 12th centuries CE, Europe and Byzantium saw a revival of classical learning, especially in Greek philosophy. The scholastic movement, an academic method of critical thought, led to the founding of universities in France, Germany, Italy, and England. This newfound adoration for learning was best illustrated by the evolution of the book in the 12th century. Before then, monasteries produced books of gold leaf and fine parchment. 
these books were too expensive for the scholars desperately seeking out knowledge. To satisfy the demand for more cost-effective products, stationare, or publishers, began mass-producing books, employing hosts of copyists. With the revival of scholarship dominating the landscape, it's natural that interest was aroused in the library's fate. But why was Al-Az the culprit in question? Perhaps it stemmed from a few incidents during the Crusades, a series of religious wars throughout the 11th and 13th centuries CE. In 1070 CE, al-Mustansir, the Fatimid Caliph, and a series of Islamic rulers in North Africa sold thousands of books from the Fatimid Library in Cairo in order to raise money to pay his soldiers. Another incident took place after a six-year siege of Tripoli in 1102 CE. The city offered to surrender to the Crusaders so long as their lives and property remain unharmed. The Crusaders agreed, but they pillaged anyway. They captured valuable books from the schools in the city. Even private book collections were unsafe from these incidents. Upon sailing from Egypt to Syria, the private collection of Muslim poet Usama ibn Munqid was confiscated and destroyed by the King of Jerusalem. These incidents concerning the massive loss of knowledge led to a stereotype against Muslim forces. Even though the Crusaders were just as involved in the destruction of sacred texts as the Muslims were during this time period. Regardless, the impression of Muslim soldiers confiscating or destroying texts may have been what led to Hebraeus blaming Al-Az in his story. It certainly seems like Hebraeus had ulterior motives in writing his story, but why would Kifti corroborate it? Kifti's readiness to record the story in detail may have been related to his association with Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt in the mid-12th century CE. Saladin, a Sunni Muslim who overthrew the previous Shiite regime, became the first Sultan of Egypt in 1174 CE. Since he needed money to fund his campaigns against crusaders, he offered treasures he confiscated in his rise to power. According to Egyptian historian Al-Makrizi, once Saladin gained control of Egypt, he announced an auction of the famous Fatimid library. Quote, the sale lasted several years, end quote. Author Abu Shama writes that Saladin's assistant mentioned the library contained, quote, 120,000 leather-bound volumes of those immortal ancient books. Of these, eight camelodes were transported to Syria, end quote. Shema writes of the fate of another library in Amida, a Syrian city, which reportedly held more than a million books. In 1183 CE, Saladin donated the library for services rendered by his chief supporters. One supporter selected 70 camelodes of books. A prevailing sadness comes from these reports, as well as from other contemporary accounts, which indicates a widespread resentment at the loss of knowledge. This sadness exposed Saladin to criticism from survivors of the old Shiite regime, whom he sought to repress. It was crucial that the supplicants of Saladin's rule justified his actions. This seems the likeliest reason Kifti first popularized Hebraeus's tale. The revival of classical learning likely led to the story's fame, but the accusation of Allah certainly stems from an ulterior motive of Hebraeus and subsequently Kifti. 
Critics have denounced the story, including 18th-century British historian Edward Gibbon. Since there's no concrete record of the Royal Library since Hypatia's death, it has been deemed a 12th-century fabrication. Our fourth and final theory claims that instead of being destroyed in a single incident, the library met its downfall gradually. Even though it seems Caesar's incidental fire may not have destroyed the library, the mythological burning of the library at Alexandria has persisted, and its blame has been credited to the Roman general by various authors over the years. However, as we've seen, this wasn't the last record of the library, nor was it the last time it was supposedly set ablaze. As a hotbed of violent military campaigns, Alexandria was subsequently vulnerable to constant destruction from various culprits. Over 200 years after Caesar's conquest, from 270 to 271 CE, Alexandria was victim to a disastrous conflict between Syrian Queen Zenobia and the Roman Emperor Aurelian. In Brian Houghton's 2006 book, Hidden History, Lost Civilizations, Secret Knowledge, and Ancient Mysteries, he writes that Aurelian was eventually victorious in recapturing Alexandria, but not before, quote, many parts of Alexandria had been devastated. The Greek district, which contained the library, was apparently made into a desert, end quote. 26 years later, in 297 AD, Alexandria fell prey to another assault, this time at the hands of Roman Emperor Diocletian. This frequent devastation inflicted the seaport city for several centuries. Equally dangerous to the library was that people's views began to change. With this change came a supposed neglectful nature regarding the library's contents. The possible neglect of the library is important to dissect. It could also harken back to Strabo's reasons for not deeming it necessary to mention the library in 20 BCE. Perhaps in Strabo's time, the library was no longer the center of scholarship that it once was. Historian Heather Phillips theorizes the library's demise was a result of budget cuts, not fire. This theory was based on the claim that at some point in the 2nd century CE, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus suspended the revenues of the Moseon, abolishing the members' stipends and expelling all foreign scholars. Phillips also assigns the city's volatility as a possible cause. Quote, Alexandria was the site of numerous persecutions and military actions, what institution could hope to attract and keep scholars of the first eminence when its city was continually the site of battle and strife? End quote. It's interesting to interpret the library's destruction not as a physical act, but more a decline in Ptolemy I's original vision of it, becoming the center of the academic world. If the library's destruction was gradual, taking over five centuries, it could be possible that some of the ancient world's greatest works were circulated, salvaged, smuggled out before or amidst the continuing wars. So when did the Royal Library at Alexandria perish? What happened to the vast amount of ancient knowledge and intellectual innovation? Most contemporary scholars agree the library ceased to exist long before the Arab conquest of Egypt in 640 AD. But beyond that, the fate of the Great Library remains controversial. 
The mystery has been perpetuated by rare discoveries of texts written on papyri, a material similar to thick paper. The lack of papyri findings could be a result of the climate conditions of the city, which is unfavorable for the preservation of organic material. But despite the rarity of findings, two recent discoveries may provide hope for other lost texts. Early in the 1990s, a 2,500-year-old trilogy of plays written by Aeschylus was found in the stuffing inside an Egyptian mummy. The trilogy, entitled Achilles, follows the titular character's exploits in the Trojan War. The trilogy's existence wasn't completely unknown. Greek playwright Aristophanes and other writers had made references to it. But until 20 years ago, it was believed to have been lost. Preserving papyri inside a mummy's stuffing was a common practice among Egyptians. The act of hiding the trilogy also lends credence to the idea that many of the texts may have escaped before the library was ultimately destroyed. Could other texts be hidden in a similar fashion? Another important discovery occurred in 2004. A Polish-Egyptian team unearthed the site of the Mosaon. Archaeologist Zay Hawass, president of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities, claims to have found 13 lecture halls that were capable of accommodating 5,000 students. The lecture halls all featured similar dimensions, with rows of stepped benches running along the walls on three sides of the room, creating a U. An elevated seat was placed in the middle of the U, most likely designed for the lecturer. According to Hawass, this is the first ever discovery of a complex of lecture halls on any Greco-Roman site in the Mediterranean area. The discovery uncovers what is quite possibly the oldest university in the world. The discovery seems quite impressive. The lecture halls were known to exist from the many different textual accounts of the famous intellectual center, but this finding finally reveals the library's physical identity. When deciphering when and how the Royal Library at Alexandria was destroyed, it seems there was plenty of blame to go around. Could it have been Caesar's blunder in 48 BCE? Or Theophilus's over-exuberant handling of his emperor's religious decree in 391 CE? Could a fabricated story about the 640 CE Arab conquest of Egypt have seeds of truth? Or was the library destroyed gradually by the city's volatility and petty budget cuts? We believe the most likely answer is that the Royal Library at Alexandria was destroyed over time. And if this is the case, then there is certainly a possibility more of the missing ancient works of the library at Alexandria could still be discovered. From the library's founding in the early 3rd century BCE to Hippotia's death in 415 CE, Alexandria's volatility and penchant for war caused the library and its ideals to constantly be under siege. This hurt the attraction of the city as a scholarly capital, and the funding and maintenance for the archive slowly dwindled. Perhaps, if the library was first conceived as a display of Ptolemaic wealth and power, then its destruction could have also reflected the decline in the Ptolemaic dynasty's rule. Even if the Royal Library survived into the first century CE, its time as the cultural center of the intellectual world was long over. Rome had taken its place as the cultural capital of the world. In 2002, the Bibliotheca Alexandrina, or the new Library of Alexandria, was established. 
Collections of the Bibliotheca were contributed from all around the world. The new structure has shelf space for over 8 million books. It also houses four museums, a planetarium, art galleries, a manuscript restoration laboratory, as well as other exhibitions. The Bibliotheca Alexandrina is meant to be a commemoration of the Library at Alexandria, as well as an attempt to rekindle something of the brilliance that the earlier center of scholarship represented. If the variables were more favorable in the ancient city of Alexandria, one wonders what could today's civilization learn from these great minds? And more importantly, what did we lose? And perhaps, what's still waiting to be found? As Carl Sagan reminds us, quote, If information could be passed on merely by word of mouth, how little we should know of our past. Books permit us to voyage through time, to tap the wisdom of our ancestors. I think the health of our civilization can all be tested by how well we support our libraries. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked us how you can help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network or at Parcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Edward G. Excalibur and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. <laughs> <laughs>